Hello and welcome to Peace, the podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Peace, a United Methodist community in Shoreview, Minnesota. I'm Jason Steffenhagen, the lead pastor. And each episode will typically start with a sacred story reading coming from the Holy Scriptures, followed by the message that was given during our Sunday morning worship time. Any announcements for our community will come at the end of each episode, so stick around. If you are curious about learning more about Peace, the United Methodist Community, you can go to peaceumc.com. Again, that's peaceumc.com. If you would like to find more episodes, you can find them on our website or go to our show page, which is peacethepodcast.podbean.com. Once again, that's peacethepodcast.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N, We hope that you enjoy this episode. Please like, rate, review, subscribe. And now, on to the Sacred Story reading. This is a challenging series that we're in. We're talking about some important and also complex topics. Most of what you've gotten up here on a Sunday is Professor Steffenhagen, who's trying to channel some hermeneutical and exegetical roots of of unpacking scripture. And so uh, bear with me uh, today and next week as we dive into these scriptures and try to unearth what might be going on in them, because we're in a series that we're calling Retrace, where we're examining the six passages of scripture that have often been used to exclude or to harm the LGBTQIA plus community. And so we recognize that these are complex scriptures. We recognize that there's been a lot of ways to interpret them, that there's been some traditional ways that people in the church have interpreted them, and those have often been used for harm. We started out this series by diving into 2 Timothy chapter 3 and recognizing that this stu- the scripture that we're studying, the, the tradition that we have, the tradition that we follow according to scripture, is that God is involved in the writing of this scripture, that this is a God-breathed, God-energized, God-inspired thing. We trust and believe that God is inspiring the writing of this, and so we can put some trust in that. But we also recognize that we have work to do because it's not like this was spoken directly to us in this moment. It's contextualized to people 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago, and these stories have been passed on, and this understanding has been given to us and passed on to us, and now we find ourselves wrestling with it. And the reason why we wrestle with it isn't just that it's because we want to seek after purely the right thing so we can hold that over others who think they have the right thing and we get to battle about it. But ultimately, according to that passage in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it's so that we can be people of good work in the world, so that we can do good things that God has prepared for us to do, that there is something for us to do to make this world better, to make families better, communities better, work environments better, schools better, safer, healthier, flourishing, that God is about good work in the world, moving it all towards the kingdom and kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And we want to trust that that's real, trust that it's possible, and trust that that's what we're invited into. And so in order to do that well, we got to dive into this complex funky book called the Bible and try to unpack it and understand what's really going on. And what's hard sometimes is that there are passages like what we're going to read today that are a little complex and a little challenging. Before we dive into the passage today, 
Because if you read the title for today's sermon, it's called Idols and Partisanship. I like politics a lot. I, I like watching the debates. I like watching all of the spin room stuff. I like watching all the pundits talk about how they're interpreting what someone said, and then someone else interprets what they said, and it's vastly different. I like all the complexity, but I like all the games. I like all the, the, the parlor room stuff. I like debates because people are using rhetorical devices to try to get their person to say something else, or they're coming back at them, and it's, it's like watching a sporting event that has real stakes to it. Because as Seinfeld said, basically when we're watching sports, we're just cheering for laundry. The players change teams, people retire, and then the team stays the same, and we're cheering for someone's laundry, and, and, and that's what sports is all about. Politics is a little bit different because when we're cheering for one side or the other or we're trying to understand how, who's winning the debate or the argument, who's making the most sense or not, the stakes are a little bit higher than winning you know, the World Series or the NBA championship or the Super Bowl. The stakes are that someone's in power and they can shape the direction of the country. They can shape the laws. They can shape the way people's lives are lived. And so as much as I get excited by all the, the fun of politics, I also recognize that there's a weightiness to it. And I bring that up because I think unpacking this passage, diving into what's going on in Rome in the first century, could possibly help us as we navigate the complex world of politics and, let's be honest, the Thanksgiving table that we find ourselves at that can be an extension of what we watch on the news, where we have two sides yelling at each other and dissolving into an unhealthy relationship. And so in order to keep from that happening, we have to navigate this maybe a little differently. So here's the complex passage, and then we're going to unpack it. And I'm starting in verse 24, not verse 26, for all those that are, are curious. Therefore God gave them over in the desires of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the, cre the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And then we get to verse 26, and this is the passage 26 and 27 that are often used to exclude the LGBTQ community. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. Their females exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural, and in the same way also the males, giving up natural intercourse with females, were consumed with their passion, passionate desires for one another. Males committed shameless acts with males and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. So here's the question. What is Paul doing? in the book of Romans. Like not just this passage, but in the book of Romans, what is Paul trying to do? Because if we understand what Paul is trying to do in the entirety of the book of Romans, it might help us unpack what's going on in these specific verses. Now, before I get into all of this, I want to make a statement that will be both welcomed and uncomfortable. And it's this. People throughout the centuries have interpreted these verses very differently. And I want to recognize that there are different ways of unpacking this. And unpacking it in a different way than I'm going to do today doesn't make someone less welcome and doesn't make someone less worthy of love and belonging. It just means that they're engaging the scriptures differently. I was a person who engaged this passage far differently than I am today. And that didn't make me any less worthy of God's love and belonging. And so as someone who is going to be landing at a certain interpretation of this and trying to articulate that well over the next few minutes, 
I want us to hold space for the broader Christian community, the one that maybe traditionally won't agree with what I'm saying. I think we need to be able to create spaces where we can hold different interpretations and still find one another worthy of love and belonging. And so I want to hold that as, as, we, as we move forward. So Paul in this book, in this letter, is writing to the church in Rome in about the 60s in the first century. So we're not talking like 1860, we're talking the 60, like 0060. So this is way back first century stuff. Prior to Paul writing this, the church in Rome had a thriving and growing uh, Christian community, and it was made up of Jewish Christians, those that were historically Jewish, that had become Christian after Jesus was on the earth, died and rose again, and they had become Christians, and Gentiles, or Romans, or Greek people. These were the people that were not Jewish, but they were in Rome, they were Roman citizens, they were Greeks, they were Romans, they were Gentiles, and they were also converting to Christianity and joining this church. So we had Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians coming together and having this beautiful community. Well, the Emperor Claudius comes along and says, these Jewish Christians are, these Jewish people are not helpful. They are causing too much trouble. We need to get rid of all the Jewish people in the city. And so they kick out all of the Jews for about three to five years. And so there's no more Jewish Christians that are a part of this Christian community, this growing, thriving Christian community. And so for three years, the Gentile Christians, the Roman Christians, the the Greek Christians, they were the ones that were in the operation of the church. They were the ones in charge. They were the ones trying to understand how to navigate this, how to create expectation, trying to live this way. And they didn't have the influence of the Jewish Christians. And then... Claudius dies, and the Jewish Christians get to go back to Rome, and they get to go back to church, and they get to go back to their community. And guess what happened over the course of three to five years once the community came back together? They didn't get along. They had a hard time. They were debating how to practice this new faith, how to understand what Jesus was all about, how to embody this way of living as Christ in the world. And they were not seeing eye to eye. They were not having a lot of healthy relationship. And so the Apostle Paul hears about this. He recognizes this is what's happening. And he says, I got an idea. I'm going to write them a letter. And I'm going to let them know that I'm on my way. And I want to go to Rome and I want to help this community. But before I get there, I want to try to get them as much help as I possibly can. So I'm going to write this letter to them, helping them as a community. So hopefully by the time I get there, they've started to work on this a little bit, and then I can come in and and kind of finish the job. And so Paul writes this letter to a dysfunctional, disorganized, tense, frustrated group of people that have division among them. Sound like anything you know in politics today, right? This week of all weeks, right? Um, No more comment necessary. And so, what is Paul doing in in these first few chapters? Well, Paul is actually using a rhetorical tactic that we find in the first century. We find this in the writings of of, uh, Aristotle and Plato. We find this in Socrates. We find this in a lot of different philosophers. It's a way of trying to make an argument, to make your case. And we see this in politics all the time. It's called the stump speech. Anyone know what the stump speech is? 
It's where you get up in front of an audience of people that are friendly to you, all that are wearing your hat or your shirt or your banner or your badge or whatever it is, and they are all excited. They're waving their flags, and they're so passionate about you. So if you're a Democrat, you get up there and you say, the MAGA Republicans are trying to ruin democracy, and the crowd goes, yeah, and you say, we got to help the poor, and we got to help you know, the marginalized, yeah, and like you just you do the thing you do in order to drum up your audience right? And you get them excited and you get them pumped up about it. And so at the beginning of the book of Romans, Paul is writing to a group of people and he's using a rhetorical tactic to try to grab their attention. And so what he's doing is he's speaking in this chapter to the Jewish Christians in Rome. And he's like, these Gentiles, they have lost the plot. These Gentiles have no idea what's healthy and unhealthy. These Gentiles are off and they're headed down the wrong path and God's justice and God's wrath is coming for them. And you could imagine if you're a Jewish Christian in that community and Paul starts his letter by saying how awful the Gentiles are, you're sitting there doing what? this is awesome. This is everything we've been saying for the last 10 years. Like, this is everything we've wanted a leader to say. Of course, the apostle Paul's on our side. He understands the Jewish tradition. He understands who we are. He gets it. Like, this is exactly right. This is what we should be said. Those Gentiles are stupid. Those Gentiles don't know anything. They don't know about Jesus. They don't know about the cross. They don't know about the tradition. They don't know anything. And they are going off in this direction, and it's deplorable, and it's horrible, and it's awful. Just watch them burn. Like, this is so terrible. Thank goodness, Paul, writing this. And then at the beginning of chapter two, Paul does the parlor trick that we don't do in politics. Because in the political stump speech, we just keep going. And then we say, vote for me. And then we walk off the stage. Paul doesn't do that. Paul gives the speech. And then in chapter two, he turns to the Jewish Christians and says, and you are doing the same thing. You've done the same things. Right? totally flips the script on the Jewish Christians. He's like, those Gentiles, those Gentiles, those Gentiles, oh, by the way, you're the same as them. You do things that are worthy of God's wrath. You're not the bee's knees. You're not the greatest slice of bread. You are not always healthy either. You're in the same boat. And then Paul's going to go on for a number of chapters, and he's going to talk about the ways in which we fall short, which is human. And then he's going to talk about the need for grace and Christ and the transformation of Christ that moves us forward in unity. So when we read those first few, that first chapter of Romans, especially the verses that I just read to you, here's a question that was posed in a book I read. Does Paul actually believe what he's writing? Because if this is a rhetorical tactic to try to grab people's attention and then flip the script on them, does he really believe what he's writing? Is, is this, are we supposed to just take this as the literal truth? Like Paul wrote it, Jesus wrote it, God wrote it, Spirit inspired it, therefore this is what it's supposed to mean. Or we bring a little nuance to it and say, okay, but then why? What is Paul doing here? How do we dive into this? If it's a rhetorical tactic, if he's trying to grab their attention, he's trying to flip the script on them, if he's got a bigger idea in mind, then what's going on in these specific verses? Because it's pretty pointed and it's pretty specific. So how could we understand this then? There's three ideas here. Dishonorable passions, shameless acts, and then unnatural relationships. 
First one, dishonorable passions. These, in the context of the first century, were not big, broad, universal for all time dishonorable passions. These were cultural customs that the Gentile Christians were engaging in. And the Jews were like, nope, our history says we don't engage in these type of of situations. And so when Paul talks about them being dishonorable passions, what what he's commenting on is what the Jews held as a cultural custom in order to be a unique people. So one of the authors of a book I read compared it to the way that we treat the flag here in our country. I think if you've grown up in this country at all, you know there's ways of holding the flag, there's ways of putting out the flag and using the flag that are appropriate, and then there are ways that aren't appropriate. If the flag touches the ground, that's a no-no. Now, a piece of cloth touching the ground is not a universal sign of disrespect or it's not a universal sign of like depravity. It's just a piece of cloth hitting the ground. But our cultural custom is a, is, a, is a piece of cloth that looks like that. We hold with a little more respect because it stands for something. And so a cultural custom of the Jewish community is that you don't engage in sexual connection to people that are of the same gender. And so Paul is using that cultural custom to get the Jewish Christians riled up. He knows that that's a trigger point for them. He knows that that's a cultural custom that they're going to latch on to real fast. And so he's going to use it to try to make his point. The second thing is that these shameful acts, what are those about? The shameful acts that he's referring to is that the tradition in Rome at the time was there was temple worship and idol worship. And oftentimes that idol worship and the temple worship was also accompanied by sexual activity. That in a way to achieve spiritual nirvana, to in a way to achieve spiritual connection to the gods or to the idols that you were worshiping, a way to do that was to engage sexually with what were considered temple prostitutes. And sometimes those prostitutes were male, sometimes those were female, and you would go to the temple, and in order to have a higher level of spiritual arrival or achievement, you would engage sexually with with those people. And so these are connected to idol worship and the pagan practices of Rome at the time. Now, if you're coming from a Jewish context, like Paul's writing to in the first century, in in the beginning of of the first in this, this chapter, what is like the number one thing in the Ten Commandments that we're not supposed to do? worship idols. Like this is like, this is the foundation of the Jewish tradition is do not worship an idol. And what, what happens in the, in the story of Exodus when Moses goes up to the mountain and he's receiving the 10 commandments and, and he comes back down and they've built a what? A golden calf. He's like, are you serious? We just got done explaining. Don't do this thing. And he takes the Ten Commandments and destroys the golden calf, destroys the Ten Commandments, has to go get a replacement set. Didn't know there was a return policy for those, but there was. And so he gets a new set of Ten Commandments because they were practicing idol worship. If there is one thing that the Jewish community would run from and find disgraceful and shameful, it's anything connected to idol worship. They would have been like, you know, this was one of the first stories we learned in kindergarten. This is one of the first stories we learned in Hebrew scripture school is we don't worship idols. And now here are these Gentile Christians that say they're in community with us. And yet, and yet 
They come from these traditions where they are worshiping idols, they're worshiping false gods, and not only are they doing that, but they're, they're doing it sexually, and they're doing it sexually in ways that are not customary to us and are actually not the way that we've been taught. And this whole thing is looking very, very unhealthy to us. And so Paul's like, yeah, I know what will rile them up. I'm going to talk about the shameful and disgraceful acts that are against their customs, against their tradition, and are the most deplorable, shameful thing they can imagine happening religiously. I'm going to bring all of that up. And then he's going to kick it, he's going to finish it with these unnatural ways of connecting. And here's the thing. The scripture says they exchange natural for unnatural. And now we read that and we think, okay, what's going on here? Is there like a, is there like a right way to do this and then a wrong way to do this? What's, what's the thing about this? Well, here's the, here's the thing. When we dive into the Greek, the word unnatural isn't the same word for evil. That's often how we've interpreted it. They exchanged healthy, wonderful, beautiful relations for deplorable, awful, evil relations. That's not, chain, that's not what's actually going on in the Greek language. It's not great, wonderful, wholesome, and then deplorable, awful, nasty, evil. That's not natural and unnatural. Natural and unnatural was about procreation versus any form of sex that wasn't procreative. The natural way of things was the thing that led to procreation. The unnatural thing was a sexual act, could be between a man and a woman, could be between a woman and a woman, or it could be between a man and a man, could be with a non-binary person and another non-binary. The whole spectrum of sexuality and gender, anything that wasn't procreative would have been considered unnatural. That, that can happen in a marriage. That can happen at the temple. It could happen anywhere. And the whole point was that the Jewish community saw sexual relationship as purely something that you do for procreation. And that anything outside of that was unnatural and was looked down upon. That meant in a marriage. That meant in these other forms of sexual relationships. And so it was considered unnatural. Here's how we know this word is not about evil, this word unnatural. Later on in the very letter that he's writing, Paul uses the exact same word to talk about how God has grafted in the Gentiles to the family of God, that the people of Israel were the first people God showed up to, and it was considered natural because it was all the way back from the beginning. And then God unnaturally grafted in to the vine the Gentile people. Okay, if it's evil, if it's deplorable, awful, nasty, and evil, and yet God is the one doing that, that doesn't seem to work. You can't say that in this instance over here, it's awful, nasty, evil, and then this instance over here, eh, it's just God doing what God does, no big deal. No, it's the same word. So either it's just different and the Jews are uncomfortable or God is evil. I'm going to go with God is not evil and that the Jews are uncomfortable and that they are needing an expanded understanding of sexual relationship. Okay, that was a lot of exegesis and exploration and Greek and whatnot. Everyone tracking with me so far? So 
Paul is using a rhetorical tactic to try to drum up energy about the Jewish Christians to get them all riled up and excited. And he's using their cultural customs. He's using their like rejection of idol worship. And he's using their emphasis on procreative sex as a way of saying, okay, you think this is the way it should be. And these Gentiles are doing the opposite. And they're like, yeah. And then he's like, and you're doing the same thing. So the rhetorical tactic kicks in and he's using that to say, you're all in the same boat. You're all in need of love and you're all in need of grace. Final thing before we jump into what's next is that is this. When we talk about same-sex relationships in our time today, where we have people that are committing to each other for a lifelong relationship of love and fidelity and self-sacrifice, that is not the type of relationship that is ever happening in Scripture. That is never happening in the cultural settings that we find in the biblical times. And so even if we wanted to attempt to say that this is, a, this, this is something to do with unhealthy relationship, the problem is, is that they didn't have any relationships that look like the ones that we have today. And so we have to be very careful with how we navigate these. So then here's the question. What is Paul doing in Romans? Right? If he flips the script on them, and he's trying to point out how bad both groups are and in need of grace and love and acceptance and, and unity they are, then what is Paul actually trying to do in the book of Romans? And he's trying to bring people together. In chapter 8, it says this, Who is to condemn? It is Christ who died, or rather, who was raised, who is also at the right hand of God and who intercedes for us, not us Jews, not us Gentiles, all of us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This whole thing is to bring people to an understanding that the love of God is as near as possible, and it never goes away. No matter how awful you think the other side is, God loves them just as much as God loves you. Whatever you think of their practices, whatever you think of their views, God loves them and is making room for them and is drawing them near. My favorite two verses in the whole Bible. With eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers and sisters, as an act of intelligent worship, to give God your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to God and acceptable. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all God's demands, and moves towards the goal of true maturity. So what is Paul doing in Romans? Number one, unity in the love of Christ. He's trying to bring this fractured, broken community back by saying we can find unity in the never-ending, always-reconciling, beautiful love of Christ. Second is that we're called to a life of service. We're called to a life of trying to help the least of these. We're called to a life of helping our neighbor. We're called to a life of finding a way to bring flourishing and justice on earth as it is in heaven. We are called to serve our community. And thirdly, we're called to be remolded. We're called to be lifelong learners. We're called to be in touch with the spirit that is constantly trying to work us and help us and move us and transform us and remold us 
towards maturity so that we can show up in the world as a loving presence, not as a judgmental, not as an ostracizing, not as a condemning presence, but as a presence that says God's love is here. It has room for you. It has room for me. We can find a path forward. I wish, dare say hope, that the political rhetoric in our nation could move in a direction where it's a little more hospitable, where it's a little more hopeful, where it's a little more loving, that people that we call civil servants actually serve one another, where we can actually be people who are trying to be remolded changing the way we think because we're listening better, because we're engaged with other people, because we're willing to think critically about the things that have divided us and say, is this really worth dividing over? Is there a way to find unity here? People are going to interpret this passage of Scripture vastly different from the way I just did, and that's okay. The question is, Can I find a way to bring unity, to serve, and to be remolded so that I can be a loving presence? Doesn't mean that I change my mind in accordance with them, but it does mean that Christ and the Spirit does a work in me so that I can be a person of love, that I can be a person of justice, I can be a person of hope. Paul is trying to bring a community together, and I think we need to hear that today. Let's pray. God of complicated scriptures, God of complicated communities, God of people who find themselves on opposite ends of political spectrums and think they're right. Meet us, convict us, challenge us, remold us, shape us, challenge us, push us so that we can move towards unity and love, so that we can move towards serving, not for our own good, but for the good of the least of these. Remold the spirit. Transform our minds, not not simply to what we think is the best argument, but remold our minds so that we can put into practice the plan that God has to bring about good on this earth, to bring about love. Thank you for listening to this episode of Peace, the podcast. If you would like to learn more about our community, go to peaceumc.com. Again, that's peaceumc.com. For more episodes of this podcast, you can go to our website or go to the show page, peacethepodcast.podbean.com. Again, peacethepodcast.podbean.com. May you experience the love of God and may you have peace.